Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Now, these are episodes that I'm always pumped on. I know I always say I'm excited about every episode, but I literally am, so deal with it. I love the Q&A episodes because it's super fun throughout the season talking with guests and kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of how they run their businesses or the advice that they have for our audience, but as the season goes and questions pile up, I just love the chance to dive headfirst into giving a response for them in this final episode. So in lieu of that, very shortly, we're going to jump into your questions, but first, man, there's just some things that I want to talk about. Thinking about it, it's just unbelievable to me that we are wrapping up season seven of this podcast. I mentioned it at the beginning in episode 100 when we talked about the journey, but doing this podcast has literally changed the trajectory of my life, and I hope it's benefited you too, but... It is just unbelievable to think about the ground that we've been able to cover. And, you know, as as I do this every, you know, I guess a year that goes by now, I, I think about, you know, are we relevant? Is this giving value? And I don't know what the long, long-term future holds for the podcast in the sense that we only want to do this as long as it gives value. But I do know in the coming, you know, months and, and and hopefully the next couple of years, we feel like there is still so much that we need to dive into that we have not covered yet. So it's just, it's humbling to think about that. Now, one thing that I wanted to share as well are some cool plans that we have for the podcast. So if you've listened for a while, you know that our model of the podcast has been that we do two seasons a year. The first season starts the Tuesday after Labor Day, and the second season starts the Tuesday after our annual trade show in March. And we generally do 12 to 18 episodes, and then we take a break for two to three months while we get ready for the next season. Now, the reason that we built the podcast that way is I've listened to a lot of podcasts that produce content every single week, and after a while, it it kind of feels sometimes like I can just tell they're fishing for content, they're fishing for guests, it's not as strong as it was, and so we opted to go for the season model. Obviously, you know, time is constrained and and to do a weekly podcast is it's a lot. Now, we have decided to alter course a little bit, though, in light of the Firetime magazine. So we launched the Firetime magazine back in March of 2020. And just a few months ago, we actually started releasing audio articles for the magazine. And I listened to these every single month. Now, I also have done the editing for them up until now, and so I have a chance to listen to them a few times. But in doing that, I have just been dumbfounded by how good the content is, and after every single time I listen to it, I'm always thinking about things that I've learned or that have just, you know, made made sparks fly in my mind, and I got to tell somebody. And that is actually what we're going to do every single week in between podcast seasons now. So starting next week, we're actually going to play an audio article from the Firetime magazine, and I'm going to listen to it in real time and then give you my commentary afterwards where we'll, we'll chat for, you know, I don't know, 5 to 10, 15 minutes about what I took away from listening to the article and some things to think about. So these are going to be a little bit shorter episodes, and they're going to happen every single week 
in between now and our next podcast season that starts in March. So I'm super excited about that because we felt like it was a way to keep content coming every week that was always relevant. So we don't have the added pressure of, oh man, we got to go get a guest this week. What are we going to do about it? Instead, the magazine content is so consistent and it's going to be our rapid reactions to it. And I think you're going to get a ton of value out of it. Now, we're going to go ahead and jump into the questions now. There's a lot more that I want to share on the back end that has to do with just our plans for the future in general. We're super excited about what has been built and just want to share with you what we're thinking for the future. So we'll do that after we get through the Q&A. But for now, stay tuned so that we can answer these questions. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and jump into our questions. This is actually a question that I get quite a bit, but I want to answer it specifically here, and it is, which podcast episodes would you recommend for a new sales rep in the industry? And this is a great question. I'm, I'm honored, number one, that you would ask that, that, that the podcast has given you enough value that you would want to pass it on to someone that is new in the industry, but I'll, I'll answer it a couple different ways. Recently, someone asked me this question about a young woman who was in the industry, and I was telling her about advice that was really angled more towards some of the amazing women that have shared with us and their experience in the hearth industry. If I didn't know anything about the salesperson, just in general, when it comes to just like best sales practices, what would my recommendation be? There's a few things that I think about. Number one is I would have your new sales rep listen to the very first episode of the podcast with Tim Rethlake. It's called What Every Sales Rep Needs to Understand. You know, to this day, I go back and listen to that conversation because Tim's wisdom is so incredible. He just lays such a groundwork for why we sell what we sell and the fact that people make buying decisions because of the way that they feel and the way that our products can solve their problem. And especially for a new sales rep, it's so tempting to take the bait of thinking, well, if I just learn about all the BTUs and all the clearances and how many square inches of viewing area it has and the size event pipe that goes off the top of it, I'll be able to make more sales. And that's just not true. Now, those things are useful at some point in the conversation, but those things in and of themselves will not make you a good salesperson. In that episode, I think that Tim really gets to the heart of what it is that makes sales. The next thing I listened to is in season three, our first eight episodes of season three, we went through a seven-step sales process, and the reason I said it's eight episodes is because the first one was an introduction where we kind of looked holistically at the seven-step sales process, and then episodes, the next episodes in the season was the, the seven steps subsequently. I think that that is incredibly important, and in each of those episodes, I interviewed a different person that I felt like really exemplified that part of the process. So, you know, we start out talking with Jeff Hanel with the Outdoor Great Room Company. We talked to Deb Hanig with Valor. We talked to Tim Rethlake again. There's a lot of great folks in that, and I, I think that you would get a lot of value out of it. The seven steps for, for anyone who hasn't heard them are this, and this is in a retail sales process. Step one greet the customer. Step two, understand their problem. Step three, advise a solution. Step four, make a plan. Step five, call to action. 
Step six, pursue the opportunity. And step seven, show gratitude. When I say it quick like that, it's easy to you know let it go in one ear and out the other and just be like, okay, Tim, yeah, I know you talk about a sales process, but I just do it my way and I don't want to be a robot. We, we have to stop that and realize that, you know, if we're going to go drive somewhere, we, we probably need to have a map. And you might say, well, Tim, you know, I've sold a million fireplaces and, you know, the same way, like I don't need a map to drive to my house. That's true. But, you know, a, a customer is, is something that's variable, right? And even though your product doesn't change, customer experiences vary greatly. And because of that, we need a process to keep us on track. The truth is that the best sales professionals use a process and that, and that's just it. So we, we dive really deep on that. And again, for anyone, whether you have a new rep or, or an experienced rep, my encouragement would be to actually take your team through those seven steps. I, I found that to be really, really powerful. Okay, and then the final episode that I'd recommend is actually back from the end of season six. It also has to do with sales process because this question was was angled at what would I advise for a new sales rep. But in season six, we had an episode that was called Why Everyone Needs a Sales Process. Actually, you know, it was called Back to Basics, Why Everyone Needs a Sales Process. And we hit at a high level different aspects of the sales process. It's actually, a, it's quite a bit different episode than the, the deep dive series that we did on the seven steps, but it's very complimentary to it. Now, there's more that we talk about during the the podcast that has to do with sales. But for me, I think that those three, the first one with Tim Rethlake, the seven-step sales process series that we did back in season three, and then this more recent episode, Why Everyone Needs a Sales Process. If you can have a new sales rep listen to that on repeat, they will, I mean, man, they're going to do really, really well. Okay, I hope that that helps answer the question. And uh, yeah, it's one that I get a lot. So so thank you for, for asking that. Okay, question number two. This is a really good one. And I think that this is riffing off of what me and Grant talked about during the beginning of this season, which has to do with the 10-step execution process for a hearth retailer. And the question is, how do you create a customer checklist for a salesperson to use in the store? This is an awesome question, and frankly, it's one that a lot of companies struggle with. So one of the things, if you go back and listen to the beginning of this season, when me and Grant go through the 10-step execution process for a hearth business, is that a salesperson on the floor must identify their customer's problem and give them a solution to it. They absolutely have to do that on the floor. One of the things that we struggle with is, is we sometimes are very good at talking to people about a particular product. Sometimes we're even good at selling a particular product, but we are very rarely good at understanding the customer's problem. And as, as I have been traveling around and, and going into different retailers, in the last couple of years, I don't know what the number is, I've, I've probably secret shopped close to 30 retailers, maybe somewhere in there. And, and truly, in general, I get asked, I mean, generally less than three questions. Sometimes I'm asked no questions. Like sometimes I go in, I'm looking at a fireplace and a salesperson comes up and just assumes that that's what's right for me and we're off to the races. But the point is, is that most companies really struggle with taking the time to identify the customer's problem. And so, you know, my suggestion would be that you literally create a checklist for the salesperson to use. And this can seem robotic. It, it, it takes practice. There's no way around it, but it's really powerful. So I would recommend taking a one page piece of paper 
and literally just write down the questions that like whether someone's looking at wood, gas, pellet, electric, like what are the basic questions that you need to know, right? One of my favorites, what kind of project is this? And then have have check boxes, right? New construction, total remodel, um, fireplace retrofit, open fireplace, freestanding stove. You, there's there's only a few situations that we sell products into from from you know, everything that I look at, we really have about five different situations, but, but have that as, as the first one, right? You know, what, what are the different situations that a customer could have next up? Ask about the fuel type, right? Wood, gas, pellet. You can get into questions on what do you want the fireplace to do for you? Have you seen anything that you've liked so far? And sometimes these are going to be check boxes like, yes, I've shopped around. No, I haven't shopped around. Or sometimes there'll be a spot to make notes where you just say, what do you want this fireplace to do for you? And have a spot for your salesperson to make notes. Now, in a sales process, there very often can be more questions that are needed than what can fit onto this one generic form. But this one generic form will literally unlock the door to the sale. So my advice would be to take you know a half day with your team and put this together. It is so incredibly powerful. And then what you have to do is you have to do a couple things. Like you have to print out a stack of 100 and they got to be on every single desk. And you got to have five clipboards so that anytime somebody comes in, your team is grabbing a clipboard and talking to the customer every single time. Now, you can do this with software. You could make this a fillable PDF. Frankly, like the platform that that I built Wi-Fi. We we built the whole thing off of this idea. It's just a it's a digital way to do this. So the point is that there's a lot of different methods out there, both free and paid. But my suggestion would just be to start with a physical piece of paper on a clipboard. Now this this question isn't specifically asked here, but sometimes people can say, "Well, I'm not robotic, and I don't want my team to you know to lose their personality by just checking a box," and Again, the analogy is just when you go fly on an airplane, the pilot of that airplane has a checklist that they go through to make sure all the systems are firing properly. And if that pilot says, well, I'm a natural, I've been doing this 20 years, I don't need no checklist, I got it all in my head. I mean, if like I don't want to ride on that plane because a professional uses a checklist and that doesn't, it doesn't take away from their knowledge it actually allows their brain, my friend Chris Becker was talking to, us, to me about this earlier this summer, it allows their brain to focus on solving problems, not remembering things. And that is powerful. So use a checklist, you'll be better for it. And you know, if, if you need help with that, sit down with your team for a half day and I guarantee you're going to come up with something that's going to be really good. Great question. This next one, actually, it actually piggybacks... Um, it piggybacks right off of that. So let's jump into this. Okay. You talk about having a customer sit down in the showroom. Is that really necessary? What if I don't have space for it? Again, great question. And this is one that I get a lot as I, as I go work with businesses. And, and Grant does the same thing as, as he goes in with me. In general, most, most showrooms do not have good sitting areas. And instead, they've got a bunch of products uh, that are crammed together. My advice is actually to remove products in in lieu of having a sitting area. In general, 
showrooms are overcrowded and you often have five fireplaces that look the same and do the same thing for about the same price. And that does not help a customer. Instead, what we want to do is we want to have less options and better reasons for those options. And you can fill the empty space with sitting areas. So let's just rewind back a little bit and talk specifically about the question about do customers literally have to sit down? And the answer is yes, they do. I go back to Zig Ziglar. I think it was in Zig Ziglar's Secrets of the Close. Even if it wasn't in that, you should get that book because it's unbelievable. Actually, make sure you get the, the audio book. It's, it's incredible. But I, I believe it was in that book that Zig talks about when people are making high-end purchases, they feel comfortable sitting down. And he is absolutely right. So I've just seen this day in and day out from working in a showroom that did not have sitting space versus one that does. So previous showrooms I worked at did not have a place to sit down. And what happens when both you and the customer are standing up, even if you want to ask them questions to understand their problem, it gets confrontational very quick because often you're standing facing each other. Very often one or both of you has their arms crossed. And I mean, frankly, like sometimes it's just like two dudes you know, with their leg up on a wood stove, having a a power trip over who's the alpha male. That is not the environment that you want for a high-end sale. When people sit down, like we just feel more comfortable. We can't help it. And we had a showroom, this is going back uh, five, six years roughly, where we literally removed some of our gas stoves to put in chairs. At the time, we, we... Hadn't been selling many gas stoves, so we pulled two of them off the floor. We filled the space with chairs and with a small table in between, and we angled the chairs so that they were facing slightly away from each other, and it was a perfect way to sit down with the customer, very non-confrontational because you're shoulder to shoulder, not face to face where, where you're, where you're, you know, you're, you're in like a, a fighting position. You're, you're shoulder to shoulder. You're looking at the products and you can very casually sit down and ask questions. So yes, you have to sit down and I will tell you, remove displays to create seating areas. Like I think any showroom in general should probably have at least two seating areas. And the cool thing is that when a customer walks into the showroom, Just imagine this experience where you say to them, hey, thanks a ton for coming in. We really appreciate it. What brings you in? You know, and and they, and they talk about, well, you know, we have this remodel project that we're working on and we've been thinking about adding a wood stove to it. So what you can do is you can then say, well, that's terrific. As you can see, we sell all kinds of wood stoves, but they're actually really specific for each different application. Would you mind having a seat over here? And I'd just love to learn a little bit about your project to make sure that I understand it. So that way we can show you some options that'd be a great fit. No rational customer will say no to that. They really won't. And sometimes salespeople will say, well, a customer doesn't want me asking them 10 questions. It's only because it wasn't framed properly. If you can have a space in your showroom to literally sit down, it is just incredibly powerful. So I know I'm coming off pretty strong on that, but I really believe in it. And and frankly, uh, most showrooms have too much product. So even if you were to lim- eliminate you know, 10, 15% of the product in your showroom and in favor of that do um, spaces to sit, it, it will pay off for you. All right, next question is, do you have an example of a job walk form for an estimator to use? 
And this is a great question. It's piggybacking off of, I forget what episode it was this season, but it was in the 10-step execution process when we talked about the execution process, when we talked about the step where the estimator goes out to the house and they need to use a specific job walk form. So similar to the the checklist that the salesperson needs to use, the estimator has to use one. And, And many of you listening, I'm sure, use some kind of a standardized form. So the answer is yes, but you're going to have to wait. So yes, we do have one. And the answer is yes, I have an example of one and I can give you that if you want, but you can also make one yourself. So every company is going to be a little bit different. And the questions that I might put on mine could be slightly different than yours. Maybe they're going to be very similar, but these forms are very basic. And again, my recommendation is to sit down with the person that does your estimates. Maybe it's, maybe it's just you, but maybe it's your lead installer and sit down together and come up with this form. Because again, sometimes installers get upset because the person that estimated the job saw it differently than them, get their input on creating this form. And you're going to want to have all kinds of things, right? It's like on the job walk form, you want to have what's the product that is going into the home. You want to put what problem for the customer does this solve? You know, you want to, you want to put down what is the access like? getting to the house. You want to have a list of the pictures that need to be taken. You want to have a a place for a written scope of work that's actually going to be read to the customer that they are literally going to sign for, right? So the estimator needs to tell the story of what's being done. We're installing a gas insert into the basement of the home. We're going to be running a gas line approximately 90 feet along the side of the house from the meter and punching through the chimney into the fireplace. We'll clean the chimney prior to the installation and drop a certified liner pipe down and have it inspected by the city, right? So like whatever it is, you want to draw up a scope of work for the job that the customer literally, it's, it's read to them by the scheduler and it's on their printed scope of work that they, that they sign and no work is done without a customer signing it. So you can email me for a specific example if you want. I'm going to tease something here though. Coming up in May, we are, Lord willing, going to be putting on the Firetime workshop, one on the West Coast and one on the East Coast. And this is going to be a three-day event where me, Grant, and the Firetime Magazine team are working in person with dealers from all over the country to help them build out the 10-step execution process in their business. And we will literally help you make the best job walk form and even set it up for you digitally at this event so that you can literally have your estimator do it on an iPad. They can hit submit and it gets emailed to all the people that need it and you've got it for the future. But either way, yes, I got an example. You can shoot me an email or better yet, come to the Firetime Workshop. Okay, next question here. This, okay, this is a good one. I'm getting started with sales meetings. How do you actually role play without looking like a jerk? Uh, That's a good one. (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah, you you can definitely look like a jerk when you're role playing because sometimes what'll happen is um, generally role playing as a a sales team goes one of two ways. Either the boss is too afraid to do it and so they, they don't or the boss is actually a really good salesperson and they do it to show off and they see every fault with everybody else and they look like a jerk. So this is a great, this is a great question. You know, so first off, amazing to get started with sales meetings. Just the fact that that's being done is absolutely, absolutely huge. 
doing those sales meetings week in and week out, that, that'll change your company first off. But role-playing is powerful. My belief is that role-playing should be done, I mean, gosh, at least once a month. And, and I would honestly try to do it every single week. It's, it's that important. Um, have, have your reps that, that come in to work with your team, have them do it. When a rep says, hey, can I come in and do training on my new product? Say, uh, I want you to role-play for an hour with my team, and then you can tell them about the new product. It's that powerful. And, and any chance that your team can get to practice is, is good. Okay, how do you not look like a jerk? This is my advice. So when, when I was running my retail stores a couple of years ago, and we would role-play, we had a piece of paper and a clipboard that everybody on the team had. Now, uh, generally in our Oregon meetings, we had a team of about six people that would be role-playing together. And in Washington, we had uh, smaller teams. So this, this can work whether you have two people or, or you know five people, 10 people. But I would print out a clipboard and it's got a few simple categories. It's going to say what worked, question mark. It's going to say what didn't. And then I would have the steps of your sales process listed out, right? So like we had our seven steps listed out. And when someone starts role-playing, everyone on the team has their clipboards and they just make notes. And again, this this can be intimidating, of, of course, but but assuming that your team is people of goodwill and they care about each other and, and they want each other to get better, you'll do just fine with it, okay? So take notes as you're watching the exercise. And when you're done, with the exercise as the leader, this is what I would say. First off, I would ask the person who was who was acting as the salesperson what they thought. So ask them what they thought. This allows them to talk about the situation first. And sometimes they'll even be rolled down on themselves, like, oh, I, I stunk. I did I did terrible. I, you know, I uh, I should have done this better. And sometimes that's just like false humility, or sometimes they actually really are just down on themselves and they need to be built up. But I would recommend have them share first how they think it went. Then ask the person who was the customer in the exercise how they thought it went. And then my suggestion is as you go around as a team, you first talk about something that went well. And just ask someone on the team, hey, was there anything that stuck out that they did really well? I guarantee there's going to be at least one thing that they did well. I've, ne- I've been in some, some bad sales practices. I've never had a situation where nothing was done that was good. So first talk about that. Affirm the things that are good. Then graciously say, did anybody notice anything that could be improved? Someone could say something. Maybe, maybe you want to share a thought. But my suggestion would be to be direct and short with what needs to be improved, right? So sometimes, you know, if you're observing a sales conversation, there's a million things that could have gone better. You just got to pick pick the top one and, and just say, hey, you know what? Here's what I noticed. And next time, think about doing this. Don't give them everything. You'll crush their spirits and, you know, people tend to learn better off of their strengths and their weaknesses. Plus, once they can master that, then maybe in a future practice, when they make another mistake, you can talk to them about that one. But that's my suggestion. If you, if you can do that, you know, you've got a checklist form. So that way it's structured. It's not just a motion where people are actually taking notes, they're talking about it. And you go through that rhythm of first ask the person who acted as the salesperson, how did they think it went? Ask the person acting as the customer, how they thought it went. And then open up to the team. What, what do you think worked really well? 
and then talk about, you know, what do you think they could have done a little bit better? In doing this, you will actually affirm amazing things about your team members and and, and encourage them just to, to push into their strengths more and more and more. So that's my suggestion for how to not look like a jerk. Another thing too is, again, I would recommend you as the boss going first. Now, you can't be a show-off and um, even though you're the boss, ask them the same things. That, that, that you're giving as far as feedback goes. I'm thinking about a time in Bellevue, Washington where we were doing sales practice and man, I crashed and burned. Like I just did not do good. Like something, I don't know what it was that day, but, but one of my team members was like, Tim, man, you just, you are something wrong. Like, are you, are you feeling okay? And I just had to laugh and say, yeah, that wasn't very good. You know, <laughs> I don't know what is going on. I just crashed and burned, but I'm glad that I'm glad that I did that here instead of with a customer. So that's okay. You can have fun with it. Really good question. And if, if you can do live practice, man, you, you win. Okay, let's jump in here. I'm new to the industry and I'm having a tough time with getting the hang of writing up estimates. How can I learn to make it easier for myself? This is a question I actually got a while ago and I saved it for this podcast episode. This is a great question. Uh, my belief is that getting quick estimates out is the Achilles heel of our industry. And we lose like hundreds of thousands of dollars of business each year because we don't get estimates out quick enough and other companies do, or the internet does, or we don't and customers don't buy. So getting out a quick estimate is absolutely necessary. And as a new salesperson, it's tough because they don't know all the price books to look through and putting together a vent kit. Like, my goodness, I, you know, you need a degree in, in biblical Greek to do that. Sometimes it's hard. How do we make it easy? A couple suggestions. I would recommend putting together templates. So no matter how complex your product offering is, I guarantee you've got five products that make up 70% of your sales. I'm speaking hyperbolically, but I mean, really, like you probably have five products to make up 70% of your sales. And what you need to do is you need to make up template estimates for those five where a team member can go in and they can easily modify what's in there. Or at the very least, they can just print that exact estimate for a customer and say, hey, this is just an estimate. It's what most people spend on this product. I'd love to get someone out to your house to take a look at it, right? But there needs to be a way in the showroom before the customer leaves. You have to get an estimate to them. And that's, that's a great way. For years, we just did this off of Excel files and uh it was just a you know just an excel file that we, we put together a, a clean looking spreadsheet that had our top five units on it we literally had like a drop down where you could choose at the time like you know insert a insert b insert c and you know you could you could have the prices change based on that but that was a great way to do it when it comes to to vent pipe i'd recommend putting together kits in a heartbeat so is I've done a lot of work with this and, and there are a lot of different scenarios of, of vent pipe, but it's worth putting together kits. So like, so take a wood stove. Well, how many ways can, are there to vent a wood stove? Well, there's, there's a few, you know, there's a, we can vent it vertically or we can vent it out the wall and then up. And that's really about it. Now the variables is that we could have a one story or a two story or a three story home. We could be in a basement and we could be going through a fireplace, so we need to convert to a flexible liner pipe. We could be going out the wall and up two stories and pushing the pipe through uh, an overhang on the roof, so that we actually need a flashing, right? But again, in many of those situations, you're going to have customers that 
that like out of those however many situations there are, there's going to be three of them that make up 80% of your business. Make a vent kit for those three. It's just as simple as that. A, a while ago, this is going back 10, 12 years, I put together something at my old business. We called it the pipe Bible. And again, this is like one of the foundational things that helped us build Wi-Fi is like, it was the pipe Bible. We listed out like every venting situation possible and we created like, what are the parts that are needed for it? If we're going to add a second story, add a third story, what are the additional pieces? But, but doing that is, is good it, because it gives your new salesperson a way to start thinking about the customer's problem and situation as opposed to what price book do I need to look through. So that's my suggestion. If you're on a point of sales system like Ephesus or Windward or QuickBooks, again, make templates for your for your top five products that you sell. Um, if you don't use those, you know, uh, you make it in Excel. And again, like this is the whole reason that we built Wi-Fi is, is, is to do exactly this because, you know, as, as, as we... As, as we get further and further into the digital age, it, it's just becoming more and more inexcusable to not give a, a customer an estimate on the floor. If they leave without it, they're either not going to buy most likely or they're going to they're gonna go find someone that can. So it's a great question and, and that's, my, that's my advice. Okay, just a couple more here. Um, the, okay, I can't handle any more business right now, but I know that it's going to dry up. What should we do when that happens? You know, it's funny. I I talked with a retailer this week that that told me, man, uh, I'm going to welcome when it slows down and when it pulls back. And I was actually reading just literally before recording this episode, I was, I was reading the latest patio and hearth report. And there was an interview with, with a retailer from um, the uh, Western part of the U S that was saying, I would actually welcome a slowdown, but I don't, I don't see it coming. And I think that that's how a lot of retailers feel, right? Just like, just like this, this question saying like, you know, I can't handle any more business right now, but, but it, this is wise because, uh, knowing that it's going to dry up is important. It will dry up. Now, my belief is that it will dry up sooner rather than, than later, sooner being in the next six to 12 months. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, so that prediction doesn't mean anything, but, uh, I think it is going to dry up sooner than we think for a lot of reasons, and we need to have a plan when that happens. So this is a great question. Okay, right now you're, you're bursting at the seams. You, you can't handle anything. Okay, so you can you, you get a pass for now, but in four months, think about this. As it starts to dry up, what do we what do we do? We build a follow up system. We build a follow up system for for our customers. Period. End of story. We need to categorize all of our jobs in a database. You can do this by purchasing CRM software. You can do this by making an Excel sheet. You can do this by writing it down on a piece of graph paper. I don't care, but you got to categorize all of your jobs, right? And this looks really simple. You know, you have Mrs. Smith, her phone number, her email, her product. What category is it? A gas insert. What are the notes on the job? Mrs. Smith was super interested in this, but she is not going to pull the trigger until the spring. Make sure to follow up with her as promised on March 30th. These are the kinds of things that you want on your customer dashboard because once it starts to dry up, you got to go out and get those customers. You have to. And I've, I've seen this work so well week in and week out with, with the companies I've been a part of where when you can have a team member that has a whole customer dashboard full of customers where you understand at which 
stage of the sales pipeline everyone's at, right? So like, you know, Mrs. Smith, she's at stage one. She's received an estimate. John Jones, he's at stage two. We've scheduled an appointment for his house. Sally, you know, Smitty, whatever her name is, right? She's at stage three. We've completed the appointment. We finalized the bid. Understanding where these jobs are in the pipeline allows you to be proactive in going after them to close. And when things dry up, this is how you're going to make money. People still buy fireplaces in a recession. They do, but not as many. So in your market, you've got to be the one with a follow-up system built. And, And honestly, I would tell your team members, one hour per day minimum working the follow-up system. So right now, I know you're, you're busy, you can't think about it, but when you get into the off-season, take the time. Create your customer dashboard. If you need help with this, you can reach out to me. I can help you. There's, you know, there's CRM software systems that can help you too. But create this dashboard and build a rhythm for your team members. Like, I mean, literally, like have them leave like, other responsibilities that are less important to follow up because this will make your company money when things dry up. There's more that can be done, but I, w- I would say that's it, period. And and don't, don't only follow up once. We talked about this back in our episode in season three that we referenced earlier in, in the seven-step sales process, our episode with Adam Cribb, where we talk about the follow-up process with customers. And my suggestion, honestly, is I would follow up a minimum of seven times with your best prospects. And you know, you might say, Tim, that's crazy. Well, it's not because people are busy and this is not following up with them seven times after they've said, stop calling me. It's following up with them and, and, and they screen the call because they don't recognize the number and it goes to voicemail and they delete the voicemail without hearing it because they don't recognize the number. So you got to call them again and then you send them an email saying, Hey, I didn't hear back. Wanted to check in on this. And then you call them a week later and you say, Hey, we have a promotion coming up that I just wanted you to be aware of. You give value every single time that you follow up. Don't just follow up, you know, with nothing to say. But doing this will win you jobs. And you can actually start to get pickier about the jobs that you take when you have a follow-up system because you don't need every job. You can take just the best ones. So terrific question. I know it's crazy, but that's what I would do. You know, gosh, the second that March or April hits, start building this system. You will be so much better for it. And uh, and I'd love to help you. And I'm, I'm sure there's other people that would too. Okay, final question to wrap this all up. Yeah, this is good. Okay, the 10 steps sound good when you say them, but my company's actually a lot different. How can you make it sound so paint by numbers? Okay, uh, I actually get this quite a bit. I'm thinking about a conversation I had about six months ago, very similar to this. A couple things I'll say. So we, we, we do talk about the 10 step execution process to run a hearth retailer. Now, okay, first we'll talk about the outliers. This process will change, number one, if you don't offer installation. The process will change. Now, the process still happens, but you're not in control over every single step. So if your company doesn't offer installation, I would say you'd, you'd still use this process, but you're going to have to modify certain steps because the people don't work for you. But But generally, the customer buying experience is going to be pretty close to the same, but there is going to be some nuance. The second thing is going to be if your company specializes in new construction or remodel jobs where you're working with a contractor, you actually will not use this process at all. You're going to have a totally different process. New construction and remodel when a contractor is involved is 100% a different business than retail. We sell the same products, 
you know, we think that they're the same and they are not, they're just not the same. And there's, you know, there's some manufacturers that understand this and there's some manufacturers that, that don't, but as a retailer, you've got to build a different process. And that process is going to have to do with how you communicate with the general contractor on the job and how you deal with changes in the schedule, how you prep for holding on to the decorative front for six months while the home is getting built. That's a separate conversation. This question specifically is about, you know, this specific question is about a retail company, you know, that, that is different. And what, what I will challenge is to ask the question, is your company that different? Sometimes we think that because of my market, because of, you know, how long my company has been in business, because of our customers, that, that we're just different than everyone else. And I would challenge that. And I would guess that you're actually probably not that different when it comes to the core process. Now, the way that you execute, your your touch on customer service, the attention to detail that you show, that may be totally different, but I have not seen a retail hearth business yet where these steps don't work or at least get them pointed in the right direction. So the goal of it is not to make it necessarily just like paint by numbers where, again, you rob all the humanity out of your business, all of your uniqueness is gone, and you and the business down the street that uses these same steps look exactly the same and, and you just become a parody of each other. I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's like a sales process, right? You could have two different companies use the exact same sales process and the customer experience could be totally different because the products they sell, because the way they ask questions, because how their team and their showroom is set up. And it's actually the exact same thing here. So two businesses could use the same execution system and run vastly different companies. But let's just walk through these steps real quick, right? So a retail hearth business, step one is in the showroom. What needs to happen. I mean, that's, that's basic. I mean, everyone's got a showroom. And if you look at, at the essentials, right, we need to identify the customer's problem and give them a plan of how they can solve it. Like, and that's a great step. And then we need to set up the estimator who's going out. I mean, I think that every business has to be true for step one, step two, when the estimator goes out to the house and again, this assumes that you do in-home visits, but it also assumes that you do installation. If you do installation without in-home visits, that's terrifying, but there are some situations where you can you can get away with it uh, through digital means and, and things like that. But most of the time, you're, you're, you know, you're going out to the customer's house, so what needs to happen out there? Well, we need to have a job walk form, and we need to finalize the estimate. The estimator needs to finalize that. So that way, it's the person at the customer's house who's going out to do it, you know, Going next to step three, the sales follow-up. The salesperson needs to confirm with the customer everything that's on the final order. They need to walk through the estimator scope of work with them because that salesperson is the liaison to the customer. Next, we move to step four where we schedule the job. And I, man, this this question didn't, didn't make the Q&A episode, but it a lot of questions that come up about, do we really schedule the job before we purchase the product? Yes, you do. You schedule it before you purchase the product so you have a target to aim at. You, you schedule it based on your, your best understanding of when the product's coming in, and then you monitor it and you move it as needed. But that's just, I mean, truly, like setting up a target like that is just the right move. After that, we purchase the product. It gets received into the warehouse. We stage it for the job. We make a confirmation call. This is step seven to the customer. Step eight, we install it. Step nine, we turn on our paperwork. And step 10, we have a thank you and a review. Very similar to the seven-step sales process that we talked about earlier. This is like very simple. It's very, you know, boring. 
there's nothing about it that is it's extremely proprietary. It's just these are just the steps that it takes to install. So I, I'll, I'll say that that while the system itself might sound like a you know paint by numbers kind of thing, I'll, I'll say very similar to the sales process. Using this system will not erase the humanity of your business and it will not change the uniqueness of your company and commoditize you. Rather, it will shine a light on the problems in your business and give you tools and a language and a common ground to overcome them. Where without something like this, there's there's no rhyme or reason for anything, which means that we actually, we, there's, there's no way to improve. So a uh, terrific question. This is one that we get that we get quite a bit and I, and I hope that that's helpful. Now, I, I'm just going to make a, 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 I was going to say a shameless plug, but it's not a shameless plug at all for the, for the Firetime Workshop again, that, that if you want to take a deep dive on these 10 steps, we would love to have you at the Firetime Workshop, whether it's easier for you to come to the West Coast or the East Coast one. This is something that is going to be very powerful and we will help you literally build this every single step of the way for your company. Okay, so that's a wrap. And it was awesome to go through all those questions. I hope that you got a ton of value. But as I promised at the beginning, there's some things that I want to fill you in on just about the future of what we have coming up. So a, a lot of folks ask us, you know, what, what are the plans for the future? And um, man, it's just, it's just so cool to see what's happened. So we, we started out with, with the Firetime podcast here. Earlier this year, we launched the Firetime Magazine. So that's that's a digital magazine for our industry that comes out every single month. But what has what has come out of that is is these auto audio articles. And starting in 2022, we are actually going to release every single article in the Firetime Magazine as an audio article. Now, recently. The only way to access those was through the Firetime Magazine app, but we've actually opened it up and created a second podcast that is the Firetime Magazine podcast. So wherever it is that you that you listen to this, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever, if you punch in the Firetime Magazine, you can find that podcast and every single month you'll be able to listen to all of the new articles. Now, when it comes to the magazine, one of the biggest pieces of resistance that we got from both people that read the magazine and from manufacturers before we started it was, are you going to do anything in print? And we are, at least at this point in time, pretty resolutely against doing a regular subscription basis print magazine, but we are coming out with a printed Firetime journal at the HPB Expo this year. And this is something that we've been working on now for months, and we cannot wait to give it to you. So at the HPB Expo, we are going to have a printed Firetime journal. The jury's out on how many pages it's going to be. I'm guessing we're going to be pushing 180 to 200. And this thing is going to be a resource that, that we want to be a playbook for your company. It's broken down by the eight different departments of a hearth retailer. It's going to have articles in them. It's going to have forms and checklists to use. And it's going to be packed full of digital content that you can access via QR code to just continue to help you run your business better. So that's something that's coming. And you know, again, the goal of it is that it's not going to be like a magazine that you just throw away when you're done reading it. We want it to be something that goes on your bookshelf and is used to run your business for the long haul. 
So that is some of what we have coming up in the future as, as we as we look at, you know, how can we continue to distribute content and and give value to to everyone who is paying attention to the podcast and the magazine. You know, we want to find more creative ways to do it. And as as we continue to uh, grow our our contributors that are that are helping to to make this content, it just opens up so much. So we're we're just thankful for the the community that has, has, has come around to, to help champion this, this movement. So, uh, with all that said, we normally would take a break here for a couple of months, but we're not, we're going to be jumping in next week with Firetime magazine articles and my rapid reaction to them. So starting next week, we're going to jump into one of my favorite articles from a number of months ago in the magazine. We're going to listen to it together. And then I'm going to give you some thoughts on what it made me think about as I listened to it. So stay tuned for that. We're going to be running those every single week up until we start the next season, season eight. And just to let the cat out of the bag, season eight is going to start out with a series on the key metrics to take control of your company. If you've been running your business for a long time and want to know how can I build a scoreboard, what do I even measure, we want to do a deep dive on that. So stay tuned. We're going to announce more in the coming weeks about our plans for the HPB Expo this year. We have some plans and it's going to be awesome. So until then, thank you for listening. The work that you are doing matters and I hope you stick with it because the best is yet to come. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. To burn it down